Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. Jim O'Neill, thank you for joining me for this Cork History Matters podcast chat. It's one I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, I'm from Dundalk. I've lived in Cork since the 90s. The Battle of Kinsale has always fascinated me. Uh, there's a wider, longer story to it. It involves Hugh O'Neill, who it turns out has Dundalk connections, which added an extra layer of interest for me to it. And it almost feels like it's a, it was a time when potentially Gaelic Ireland, or at least Gaelic, Gaelic Ireland at that time had been much influenced by by the, the Norman and subsequent English conquest. And of course, you know, Henry VIII had, had, had led the Reformation through the 1500s. And so Ireland was a much changed place, but it, it felt like it was a last gasp chance for Gaelic Ireland to assert some kind of sense of sovereignty in its own territory, on its own island. And, and it lost that chance. Atkinsale, uh, uh, you know, Hugh O'Neill, the, the primary figure of it, submits to Mountjoy in, in Mellifont Abbey in County Louth. And in 1605 or 07, he and, o- and O'Donnell set sail from Rathmullan. I mean, it's hugely dramatic. Ulster's been laid waste. You know, the, the, the Ulster had been the most Gaelic part of Ireland, the, the fastness that had held out against encrosion. And um, and now it's the one that's planted and is the successful plantation. And all of that follows after that. Like, it's it just feels fundamental to the whole story of Irish history. Uh, you wrote the book that thankfully was able to, you know, allow me to delve through that in a wider way. And the, the, the I, I, I'm get, are you a Belfast man, Jim? Oh, very much so, yeah. Uh, but but UCC was either what enabled you to to write this book or you were, you were what's your, what's your connection to UCC? Well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Um, the crack is with that is I did the research for the book, uh, PhD up in Queens in Belfast. I've been a Queens guy through undergrad and masters and PhD. It's all been Queens. But the thing that brings me down to UCC is Dr. Harm Morgan. He's the guy. He's the guy that wrote uh, uh, Tyrone's Rebellion. Uh, and so he got me in there as part of the Irish Research Council, um, mm-hmm. a two-year fellowship. And part of that was to turn the PhD into the book, which when you finish PhDs, you think, hey, look, that's it. That's all the work needs to be done. And then you realise there's a ton more needs to turn a PhD into something that anyone actually wants to read. Well, just to establish, the, just to establish the cork. I mean, there's lots of cork in the story that we're going to delve through anyway, and Munster, obviously. But um, so, did you come down to cork for the couple of years? Had you known it before? Where did you live? How did you get on? Um, I came down uh, uh, and I stayed down just outside cork. Um, band sort of split my time between there and Belfast because that's the whole thing about academia, like how how people actually shift their entire lives mm. um, from one place to the other. I, 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 they're better people than me. Mm. Um, but yeah, I split my time between uh, Cork and Belfast. Um, and, and, and did you and did you walk the parts of it that you knew were you know within? Obviously, you did. I mean, in a Shannon, I think is where O'Neill was based. Uh, and then you know, like you're you're quite clear in your descriptions around Kinsale as to where all the action took place. So did you did you spend many afternoons taking sorties around where the action happened? More than you could imagine, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Well, hang on. What? Like, I love the I love the opening to the book, which is the Nine Years' War, which is in itself questionable as to whether it was nine, ten, nine fourteen. Years, ten years war, yeah. um, but I love this opening. It's no understatement to say this book has long been in the coming. It's occasionally pointed out by a friend or family member that I've been researching this conflict for longer than it lasted. <laughs> And surely I must be done with it now. What was your fascination of it? I mean, I think you do lay out in that uh, uh, opening what your fascination is, but where where did it put a hook in you? To tell you the truth, it actually happened. I'd been working with in Belfast with the, it's called the 
Environment Heritage Service. There's like the archaeology people up there. Um, and I'd been doing a battlefield database trying to put together where the archaeology battlefields would be in Northern Ireland. And so we decided we we're going to try and get a metal detecting the uh, program put together just, just to prove, you know, to test what sort of archaeology there was. And one of the battlefields that most uh, needed it done was the Battle of Yellow Ford. So we went, right, we'll go for the Battle of Yellow Ford. And we did the work there and we found archaeological features and all the rest of that and archaeological you know, musket shot and things like that. Um, and that sort of really, it sort of reawakened my interest in the Nine Years War because years and years before that, when I was doing like third year history, and I remember we're getting, believe it or not, we're getting taught the Nine Years War in third year's history. Uh, and the way I was taught was there was this guy, Tyrone, and he started this big war against the, the English to put them out. And it goes, win, 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 win. They win the yellow Ford, And then it's like someone flicks a switch and they go, lose, 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 lose. And they get hammered at Conceal. And it was all like, well, that seemed all a bit easy. And the, the story just didn't really sit right with me. Hmm. Um, and so after this uh, work at yellow Ford, I decided to keep looking at it and looking at it and kept looking at it. And I'd been doing a part-time degree uh, for years in Queens. Uh, and so I started to focus on things about the Nine Years War elements of it. Um, and first, then after Yellow Ford, I started to look at the uh, battles in the Maury Pass in 1600. Uh, so I did that for undergrad. And then for masters, I went, I'm done. not bad, but this seemed to be working out. So I kept doing it and did more work in the Nine Years War, more work in the Nine Years War. And by the end of the masters, like, right, PhD time, let's see what, what we can do here. And so looked at the Nine Years War specifically using the military evidence because a lot of like a lot of people do social histories and economic history and all the rest of that and the tell you sometimes in history military history is a bit of a dirty word no he gets sort of weird looks like yeah he does military history i uh he, he must like dressing up at the weekends and things like that um <laughs> and even if you did happy if that's, days. <laughs> if that's what floats your boat fill your boots it's not my bag but a lot of, a lot of uh, very good people uh at this do do that uh, and knock yourself out. Um, but no, you, you get suspicious looks. They're like, mm. yeah, military history is all about, uh, he must love war, which, to tell you the truth, if you study military history deeply enough, you'll get a profound hatred for the, the, the whole concept of it's just It's a terrible thing to study, but it does actually show uh, very much in relief the human condition, you know, the worst and the mm. best of humans. Well, um, and also the technological changes taking place through that period that can influence the outcomes of so many aspects that then influence the history and what, you know, because I think in this book you talk about how Europe itself was going through a, a revolution in warfare through that period and that the Irish, this nine years war fed into that and that there was a sort of an underappreciation for the technical nous and ability of O'Neill and 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 the, the the armies he managed to gather around him and, and their abilities in the battlefield. Whereas, you know, his, traditionally, historically, it's seen that Irish fighters weren't up to much when they were taken on the English. Whereas in this case, actually, they were. Oh, was, when you're doing the research, actually, believe it or not, um, uh, the, it was like an open goal. There was so little done on it that you had people like Cyril Falls who'd written Elizabeth's Irish Wars back in the 50s. And everyone thought, well, that's that done. Um, and he was very much sort of like, well, the Irish sort of copied the English and he did quite well for a while. And then, of course, the English just sort of rolled back Tyrone's achievements. 
and that was that because sure wasn't always going to be that way uh, and I wasn't buying into that at all um so, so what we did uh, what I did was look at it and there was this whole it's a big still a debate ongoing about was it a revolution was it evolution of uh, military techniques and the gunpowder revolution in Europe but Ireland was always seen as some sort of peripheral thing and not really that much happened if you, if you look at uh, broader text it's almost like it wasn't happening in Ireland um but once you started looking at it in detail um and taking apart it's it's you end up doing it with it maybe spend too much time working in archaeology you just start to dissect what's taken for granted and see how these decisions have came to and all of a sudden you're realizing that a lot of what falls had written was basically founded on a misconception of what the Irish were doing mm. um and what it turned out is that like he would have said that the Irish copied the English because of course the English troops are here and they just copied what they were doing and the, and the weapons they were using um but later what it, as, as the work went on um what it was shown is that not only were the Irish more technically competent with the weapons no the gunpowder weapons they were actually and rather than just copying them because that was done before um certainly in Connacht after the uh, Spanish Armada in 1588, um, some of the O'Flaherty's, they just copied the Spanish and took on Spanish guns, had Spanish captains, and copied exactly what the Spanish were doing. And of course, the English turned up, hammered them, because the, the, so the English have been fighting troops like that in the continent and uh, the Low Countries and winning. Uh, so they had no problem with dealing with modern methods of warfare. What Tyrone did, he said, well, that's not going to work because um, the English are used to fighting that way. So what Tyrone does, is he takes the best of the technological advances, the firearms uh, and the, the drill and all the rest of that, and couples it with what's good about Irish warfare, the speed, the flexibility, the competency. People always, um, whenever they look at Irish warfare, they say, oh, there's an awful lot of skirmishing and running away and things like that. If you look at the um, contemporary texts and uh, 16th, 17th century warfare, uh, all of them recount how skirmish warfare is actually technically far more difficult and you need far better troops and far more reliable troops to fight and win skirmishes than stand-up battles. And um, one of the terms, like the Duke of Alba, uh, a Spanish officer, said that basically you can win, any, you can win a battle with just ordinary line troops, but you need elite troops to win skirmishes. Mm. So the amount of training that went into this, and so what he created was this hybrid force that was entirely dependent on, almost entirely dependent on firepower, mm. which is a complete reversal of what had been seen before. That's anyone that's familiar with Irish warfare at this time, they'd always know about the gala glass, know about the big gala glass axes and the heavy meal, uh, and the cairn with their, their spears and um, very light, irregular type warfare totally transforms that, takes this whole hand-to-hand, -hand, melee oriented warfare, turns it on its head, converts um, its gallow glass and kern into pike and shot, but doesn't copy, doesn't just hit the English, doesn't have like these compact formations of you no know, densely packed uh, pikemen surrounded by shot, armed with musketeers. What he does is he creates this loose uh, formations of shot, the, the whole uh, all their combat power is predicated on firepower, on shooting people, but not in big deep lines. What they have is they would literally skirmish an enemy to death, 
if I think there's loose formations that were flexible. Uh, whenever they like almost hybrid guerrilla warfare. Oh, don't, don't don't even get don't, you started. Don't well, say hang on. the G word. Oh, oh, you don't. You, 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 is that is that because it'll set you off, or because it really uh, bothers you that it's a, 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 an absolute misconception? Oh, it's a misconception. It was called um, even at the time they called it mixed warfare. Uh, okay, well, let me hold you because I don't think that's the key thing. I just think we're a few minutes into this, and there's terms popping up that, like, I'm certainly somewhat familiar with. But I want to take us back, and I think as we go through it, is maybe we'll we'll highlight who are the key people and where they've come from. But where I maybe like to start you off, and it's a it's a it's a way back. So feel free to oh, move, yeah. feel free to move through it uh, quickly. You know, is I mean, I suppose somewhere in the 1500s, Henry VIII comes to power, and the Reformation occurs. And the mm -hmm. Anne Boleyn and the Catherine of Aragon and all of this sort of thing, the uh, dissolution of the churches. So all of a sudden you've introduced a whole new concept into the, the Irish-English relationship, and it's a religious one. I mean, it's not that that's the overarching thing, but mm -hmm. it, it fundamentally changes the nature of it. We have the the old Irish, the, the Anglo-Normans, or the, the you could almost call them the... Um, the Norman French that came to, to or the Cam Cambrian Norman, I've heard them described, because they were Normans. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing that if anyone is unaware that might blow their mind. The Normans were Vikings who were attacking so deep into France, they were granted the, the territory in the north of France. A hundred years later, they beat the English. Like, it's never really flagged much that the English were were taken over by the Norm. I mean, I mean, I mean, it is, but they they don't really seem to see that as, uh, uh, um, you know, a badge of not humiliation necessarily but that like the English were defeated and taken over by the Normans in 1066 and it's a hundred years odd later that those Normans loosely based in Wales the various knights come to Ireland and 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 that's who they are speaking largely French at the time but by this period in the 1500s it's the English uh, uh, uh and there's the reformation the dissolution of the churches um you know there's an attempt to reconquer Ireland that you know, true or not, the 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 old Irish had become more Irish than the Irish themselves. But certainly, there was a huge mixing of the cultures, and and the the Norman Irish were were no longer English. They they weren't Gaelic Irish, but they were a, a mix of the two. And there was a a loose uh, interacting. I mean, it was a was it a comfortable enough situation between the 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 old Irish and the Gaelic Irish at that time? Well, there was certain friction, to say the least. I think the term that. Um... Has been accepted for them now is we call them the old english is excuse me yes that's probably what that's the, probably what i meant to be saying there actually descendants from the old anglo-normans and there was a differences that the well there's differences and there was friction but there was a huge amount of interaction mm. um but the most important th thing was they were still catholic whereas you have the reformation in england mm. uh, and the protestantization of england mm. the old english here Remain Catholic Remain and Catholic. the English Lords remain Catholic, mm -hmm. and there's that's a definite connection between the Gaelic yes. Irish and yes, the old and, that, and, and, and a bonding thing. Um, yeah, my apologies, Old English is what I meant to be saying there, but um, where I wanted to go from actually the start point was the um, I mean, the Spanish and the English in the European context are are. <laughs> Excuse me, and the English themselves are not the the great state and great nation that we might know them. I mean, they were considered the pirates of the high seas by the by the the Spanish Empire at that time, rich on 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 gold from America, presumably. Yeah, in the fifteen hundreds, um, Francis Bacon and all of these guys are 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 harassing uh, Spanish ships, and um, you know the English are are are. You know, it's it's under Elizabeth really that they come together and 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 grow as a as a as a nation and as a European power. When I suppose they beat off the Spanish, and that's that fifteen eighty eight. The Spanish Armada set sail. They're chased up over around England and 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 around Ireland, and the ships founder and 
and all that goes on. But um, it, but there, and around that time are the Desmond rebellions as well. And these these are the old English. I mean, that's who the the, the Desmonds and the Earl of Ormond. Like, what does it mean to be an Earl if you're the the Earl of Kildare or if you're the Earl of Ormond or the uh, the Earl of Desmond? Well, of course, you have the status that goes along with it and the power and the wealth and all the rest of that. But the the, the England that you're talking about, um, I think, has benefited a lot by uh, modern historiography that has created this um, great nation under Gloriana, under Elizabeth. That's not really the case. They were very much a second-rate nation by European standards. Spain was the heavy hitter. You've also got to remember that 1588, the Spanish Armada gets great press um, because you have the Battle of Gravelines and the destruction of the Spanish fleet as they go up around um, Scotland and Ireland. What doesn't get great press is the English Armada the next year that got absolutely tanked as it tried to uh, uh, take Cadiz and, and, and move around and, and to move on Lisbon that lost as many, if not more, than Spain did. And then you've got to remember that even though Spain had the Spanish Armada in 1588, you have the English Armada, which gets a battering in 1589. Spain sends another armada in 1596. And then another one in 1597. That's the kind of military power, that's the kind of wealth Spain has. And compared to that, England is really very secondary. The worst they can do is it can send um, supporting troops into the Low Countries to help... Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the uprising, uh, the Dutch uprising. And their uh, war against Spain. And so they provide assistance there and they provide assistance, but they're not a big military power. But nonetheless, in comparison to Ireland, it's four or five times the population. As e Economically, they, they are a much bigger player than, than, than how Ireland is at that time. Oh, economically, uh, yes, there's, yes, there's no comparison. That's actually why when you come to uh, look at what Tyrone did, it's not that the people always say, well, he lost. Maybe that's a spoiler. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> but how he got so far. Yes. And well, and how he ends up then hunting with the new kid. I mean, it's bizarre how it all, himself and Mountjoy chase each other, or Mountjoy chases him around the country. And they end up like, seemingly there's a story of them sharing a stable on the night together and, and drinking it up and having the crack uh, ahead of him. I don't know whether it's submitting or something. or And then they go over, you know, it's, it's, it's bizarre how all that works out. But let me hold up. There's an effort by by Henry VIII to to you know bring Ireland back under control, including the old English, the earls who are living in their own fiefdoms and kingdoms and kind of going along as they want and paying lip service to to presumably what um, they see as the central authority that they don't really have to abide hugely by as long as they keep it kind of a bit tickety boo. And there's even an uprising in Munster, the Desmond Rebellion, which maybe isn't necessary to focus in on, but it sort of influences the matter in terms of. Uh, what happens then that that little bit later but the the what i want to ask about is the um submission regrant is that what it's called um mm -hmm. and con surrender, and surrender and regrant so this is a this is again the english crown trying to so it's kind of going you surrender to us we'll give you a title but you're under you're kind of you've come underneath the mantle we we sort of like we we'll give you a certain level of freedom but it's only on the understanding that you've agreed that that we call the shots or we're the top dogs and the first and so there's a bunch of earls created around Ireland who are the Gaelic chieftains for want of a better word or or the the most powerful figures within a geographical area and amongst them is Con O'Neill who is the first earl of Tyrone uh -huh. is this correct yeah absolutely what it is brings their power their privilege under english law 
as opposed to Irish. Gotcha. Not all of them go in there. Like you do get Con goes for it. Shane only does not. Now is Shane his legitimate son? Shane is what is the connection to that? Because I'll tell you what I have, right? And, and again, we're probably thrown off. Is so there's Matthew is his illegitimate son. And I kind of remember this because I was just fascinated by the Dundalk connection of it. Alison Kelly is the wife, seemingly the wife of a of a I I don't know what he is, is from Dundalk. She An goes alleged blacksmith, yeah. Yes. She goes to the court of Con O'Neill and says, He's your son. And he takes him and says, uh, uh and 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 he and so then there's then there's Shane, who's the legitimate son, and Matthew, the illegitimate son, and Hugh is of Matthew's line. Hmm. Um, but Shane knocks Matthew out of it and then the, the English like they they take Hugh O'Neill into the pale and, and educate him whatever because they're kind of like let's breed him up to be a safe O'Neill sort of like he's our choice to be I don't know it's a bit it's a bit hard to follow all of that he's the he's the Baron yeah. of Dungannon then he gets made the second Earl of Tyrone yeah Shane whacks uh, Matthew then his Tarnister which later becomes the O'Neill Turlock Lynock uh, he whacks Tyrone's older brother. So he's he's absolutely lost under dynastically speaking. He is a dead end. The English take him in as a ward uh, and send him to the pale. They'll be brought up uh, in the, with the Hovindons. And this is a typical thing that they normally do is they will uh, and, and they do it even during the war is that they'll take a loser in dynastic succession under Irish law. Uh, and support them and so they won't want uh, after Shane's dead uh, Turlock is made the O'Neill so they see Tyrone as their man educated in their ways and he would be a perfect counterbalance to this uh, Turlock uh, the O'Neill because um, there's and, two things there's the there's the Earl which is the English title and there's the O'Neill which is the Gaelic title absolutely the, 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 the O'Neill under Irish law, has legitimacy, whereas, again, the English title. And Tyrone, as Baron of Dungannon, he's pushing the to get his earldom, and he does uh, uh, in 1587, I think, he gets, to, or 1585, he gets his um, title as the Earl of Tyrone. Um, but what he's saying, it's all about privilege and power. It's... Never get the one of the things about this whole period is never get into some sort of romantic notion about uh, that comes much later of some sort of national sense of no uh, liberty or no. It's about securing privilege and power. Mm. And it's um, also mixed. People are on all sorts of sides. I mean, even Hugh O'Neill himself skir- or go, goes throughout the north uh, campaigning with with the English forces on various things, seemingly takes some of the Spanish Armada, kills the soldiers, hangs them, saves the officers are on, on command. So like initially he's within the fold, but but perhaps he has ambitions. Do, do we have any sense of where that might have come from or where he's developed this or? Like well, so, I he's basically he's kind of like like he's English speaking, but probably also Gaelic speaking. I mean, he's a he's a mix of cultures, isn't he? He's, he's not... very very much afoot in both camps, um, and it's both are working for him. Um, but he's ambitious to say the least. And uh, the fact that he's made it this far from the position of being a, a destitute nine year old speaks to his ambition and skill. And uh, plus, he's meant to be incredibly charismatic as well. Um, but what he sees um, is the encroachment of new English coming over, new English um, 
the English uh, and the latter part of the 16th century very much established uh, a new English authority. And these are Protestants coming over, Protestant officers, Protestant administrators under the Lord Deputies. And this is the attempt to reclaim Ireland and the Munster this, Plantation and the like, which fails. You that, have the Munster Plantation. And that's the, the Desmond Rebellion, yeah. is it? That's, what... that's the Desmond Rebellion. That fails. And then you see the institution of the, uh, the, the Munster Plantation where they're bringing in uh, settlers. Um, and this has worked before because you have the, this isn't the first plantation at all. But you have the Offaly uh, uh, mm. and Leash, and that's the thing most people will know about Ulster and the Ulster plantation, but they're probably not aware is that like that that one worked because of how devastated Ulster was after you know uh, Ulster the, the the story that we're in in the midst of. But there were other ones that didn't. I mean, we Queen's County and Kings County, presumably yeah. the Offaly and Leash, yeah. uh, and the, and the Munster one. I mean, it Bandon, I think Bandon Town, mm -hmm. Middleton. That they're all of the well, maybe Middleton's a little bit later actually, because I think when you go into it, it's a sixteen oh something or other, so that's a little after, but. You know, people mightn't be as aware of the earlier plantations that 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 didn't work entirely, but 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 people that came at that time are still there and their their descendants. Oh, it was doing the the monster plantation was doing very well until it wasn't. Um, you have to remember that uh, the way this war always gets framed, it's like a war from Ulster, but it wasn't a war from Ulster. It was um yes, the leadership was there. You had uh, Tyrone. Uh, he was basically the the, the 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 pinnacle of this confederation. But there was Tyrone, there was O'Donnell over in Turconnell, over in Donegal. You have the O'Rourke's and the McMahons. The O'Rourke's from Connacht, uh, and then the McMahons, uh, this was at South Ulster. But you also have Faye McHugh O'Byrne, who's hip deep in the whole thing. Wicklow. Uh, that's, that's Wicklow. And McMahon's kind of modern. I mean, that's Oriel. Is Oriel gone, the kingdom of Oriel at that point? No, it's still there. There's, there's, there's still mention. You'll still see it in the papers. And um, some of what influenced O'Neill was when he saw how Oriel got broken up and subdivided, and the McMahon power broken, and he said, "I don't. That's not going to happen to us." That's exactly what happened. Is that, that's see, the start that's, of it. They, they see it where they that the method for what they do is they break apart the lordships and put them into much smaller lordships, and you can see certainly um, you have his arch enemy Sir Henry Bagnall and Nuri and he's pushing for the Queen to make him president, Lord President of Ulster because that's exactly what they're going to do they're going to break up Irish power mm. uh, and Tyrone sees that now when that's happening it comes at a very bad it's almost like when forces come together all this one thing in itself wouldn't have happened, made this war happen but a load of different things will happen this is sort of the breakup of the McMahon Lordship the treatment of the O'Rourke you have a very corrupt Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam who isn't above taking a bribe, but is also isn't above reneging on a bribe. Sometimes doesn't say bribe because the McMahons did bribe him, didn't help him. And you have the Bagnall, this arch enemy from Newry against Tyrone, who absolutely despised Tyrone and was doing everything in his power to, to, to uh, eat away uh, his lordship. But also you have the arrival of the Spanish. People always say the Spanish Armada was a failure, but without the Spanish Armada and the deposition of all the officers and the troops in Ireland. Without the Spanish Armada, is there a likelihood that this war would never have happened? Because what happens is they get political contacts with Spain. And it's through that. Uh, and, there's, and there's a feedback to Spain to say, we've got a sort of a, we've got an insight here. We've got people we can use who are within the footprint that cannot, that can destabilize our enemy, the English. Yeah, they say they, they create these links and use uh, Irish bishops. They create a two-way channel and mm. they see they start to get political validation. Tyrone 
would have had a much harder job going to the Irish Lords and going, join me, we're going to do this and we're going to throw the English out. And it's like, what, you and whose army? What he can do is he can say, I have the back of Spanish, the most powerful yeah. nation on the planet. Yeah. Or as far as the West is concerned. Yeah. And with that, he could go and say, the Spanish, Spaniards are backing us, they're going to send money, they're going to send arms, and they said they're going to send troops. And this makes it a much, much easier deal for Tyrone. To, okay, he wasn't beside it. If he still got rejected, he'd still say, okay, come on, join me, this'll be great. And they go, nah, you're fine. Uh, Hugh. And he goes, okay then, I wasn't asking, I'm telling you. Mm. And he would soft soap them first, but he wasn't behind just having you killed and going to the next person going, because <laughs> he did that. And let me just try to get a sense of, like, not even necessarily the man, but like, so like Dungannon, which for anyone geographically is just a little bit southwest of Loch Ney, it's right in the middle of Ulster. Uh, like, is he, is that his seat? Is he in a castle? Is he, is he in robes? Is he in silk stockings? Does he live he be, well? Do, you know, it's hard. Is it hard to know? He would have been dressed much like any other Anglo Irish or Anglo or Old English lord. He would have been dressed in the style that's befitting of uh, an Irish lord. It would be very English style dress with uh, Irish accoutrements, things like you know the, the the fine mantles and things like another you know, like shaggy cloak. Because like I say, he had to be in both camps. He couldn't mm. be mm. alien mm. in his own country. But he had the the castle up in Dungannon. Um, but it wasn't just, it was like a, a large tower house familiar across Ireland. Mm. Um, but he had additions to that. Uh, often, there's a famous illustration that shows you Dungannon broken down. It was drawn after, uh, at the end of the war. And you see this ruin of a, a tower house and an English flag on it. But people forget that early in the war, you have his large tower house. He was getting married to, uh, maybe, maybe getting ahead of myself here, but he eloped with and married Henry Bagnell's sister. That's right. That added a bit of intrigue to it, didn't it, for Bagnell? Which is just another reason why uh, Bagnell absolutely despised him. Mabel was only 20 and he was, what, uh, 41. <laughs> so, like I say, he was quite the charmer. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like she goes to Dungannon and she's like, I'm not living in that. And so he actually builds her this great big hall. Uh, and that's where they're living. And it's, it's not described in massive detail, but we know it's a big, large masonry hall. And that's where they went for feasting and things like that. Because mm. um, there's later accounts where he comes, says where he, they're all having a big meeting in the hall. And then he comes out and then he goes for some secret talks in the mm. castle, which is beside it. Mm. Uh, and so that's where he went and did his secret stuff. Mm. Um, and like even countryside wise, I mean, there's there there aren't really towns there, there's no roads as such. There's paths and passes. And, you know, because even in the story as, as you know, uh, Tyrone is being hunted through here, there and everywhere. And you're like, God, how hard can it be to find it? But there was no there was no way to get through places. I mean, it was it was a vastness, albeit Ireland's a small place. It's still big enough, you know, and, and wooded and and hard to get through areas. And local knowledge would have been paramount, presumably, uh, in terms of oh. what's the terrain ahead of us? What's the way to go? Where's the passes? I mean, would the place have been mapped? Yeah, it was local now. Well, uh, mappers tend to, certainly one of the best mappers in Ulster. Um, a guy called Bartlett ended up losing his head for having the temerity to go and try and map Donegal. Um, but it, they did, the local knowledge was absolutely essential. Um, uh, and there was actually large forests like Glen Concane in the north of Loch Ney, where even when O'Neill was on the run, uh, the Lord Deputy knew that they would only catch him by luck because no opportunity. But there were also 
much greater development than people have any conception for. The land, um, often the land is presented as wild and untamed and cows and all the rest of that. But O'Neill actually had, um, turned over a lot of his landed agriculture. Um, a lot of the reason why there was scorched earth was an attack on his ability to raise revenue. And at one point it was reckoned he could raise 40,000 pounds from his lands in one year. That's a massive amount just for him. And it was reckoned over half of his land was turned over to arable agriculture crops. And even when um, reports were coming out of uh, around Coleraine, O'Cahan's land uh, in 1600, um, Docker was mentioning how this land was actually producing as much as any county share in England of crops. Look, this is, and um, when Mountjoy was raiding in the Midlands, he said he's never seen so roads beaten or well beaten or uh, fields well boundaried. No, no, this wasn't the wild landscape they were presenting. It was actually um, exploiting, managing to exploit the agricultural resource. Mm. And that's part of you don't get forty thousand pounds out of Tyrone's lands just by raising cows. Mm. Um, and it was mentioned later in the war that it was actually just the crops that you know the the agricultural yield. Mm. That's how he was paying his troops. Remember, these aren't raised levies; these aren't forced men. The mm. people fighting for Tyrone were were, were paid, mm. and if they didn't pay them, they didn't fight. And that's mm. um. So yeah, there's a huge difference in what people see and what it was actually like. Even Dungan itself. They, they see this uh, this illustration from 1602, this old broken castle. But we know that uh, at the start of the war and before that, one, there was uh, troops being drilled there. There was uh, Scottish merchants were staying there. Um, we know that gunpowder was being manufactured there. Um, and this isn't done by people in huts. There's a whole process of how you manufacture gunpowder that involves corning and grilling uh, or sieving and things like that. That, so there's a complexity um, and a and a an industry and uh, energy and organization. You know, it's, it's it's complex stuff of the of of top level. It's far more than people would ever give credit for because mm. the pres what's presented after the war is this broken mm. estate, and people think, oh god, what a ruin! Now that is, no, there's mm. this destitute landscape. No, yeah, this is after ten years of war. That's what it's mm. like. And O'Neill destroys his castle twice. So that the English, no, one of the reasons he does it, uh, the Lord Deputy gets a couple of miles, he managed to get there within a couple of miles in 1597, so, or 1596, sorry. So what Tyrone does is he levels his castle and tells his other lords to level their castles. And people just say, well, what is he doing that for? Because they don't want to take them. And what I sort of can read into it by seeing what he does later is almost a way of removing defensive thinking from him and his adherents, because what the English are really, really good at is concentrating forces. And so if you give them a target to concentrate against and you have something that you don't want to attack, that's playing to the English strengths. But if you take that away, if you take away your castle, if you take away any sort of anchor to your tactical and uh, offensive thinking, then that's playing to your strengths. And that's what he does. So it's the ability to move around and 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 dissipate as such. Because even in some of the book, there's talk of, you know, Kerry ends up so devastated. The people, many of the people in the rural landscape, up and leave and go to Limerick. And that idea of mobility is obviously a very different conception to one we're aware of now. Uh, people have less, and maybe their their dwelling spaces are more easily and and readily buildable faster. You know, like if if it's all gone to sh 
to you know what in front of you you up and you leave and you go to a place where you can carry you know it just seems i think there was a couple of examples of places where the people up and left and go to another oh it was a somewhere left from i i don't know from from tipperary or for the and they came back a year later i think 1600 or something like that that that, oh they went up into ulster people from offaly or something like that because the place had been so devastated but that concept to us now to think of what do you mean they just they got up and went to another part of the country for a period of time on thing until things had improved people were obviously able to be much more mobile when there aren't the, the the towns as such and 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 so on yeah they weren't serfs they weren't like uh it wasn't uh Irish society wasn't feudal. They weren't tied to their lord. So yeah, of course, if things were bad, they get up and move. And sometimes it was done deliberately as well. Certainly the scorched earth tactics that were used by Mountjoy mm. wasn't to kill the population as sometimes it's presented. It was actually mm. in some cases to clear the landscape, you no, know, to take out people that could support uh mm. Tyrone. Remember, mm. these are the people that the, the these are the vast bulk of people that you never ever see in the state papers, you never see in the mm-hmm. records, but yet they represent the vast majority of the population. That's mm-hmm. like the churls, you know, the agricultural laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're almost invisible unless they're down because they're the people that produce the wealth. Ultimately, mm-hmm. Tyrone exploits it, but mm-hmm. they're the ones that are growing. Well, and, and and that's how it all ultimately comes a cropper because ultimately the, it, it all gets brought to a point that there's there's no ability to carry on the fight as such. The place has been wasted. And and again, I think the thing for me that, and it's not romantic, but it's just that sense of like, that is how Ulster gets taken. That is how Ulster has ended up what Ulster is now, a, a mixed community of, of, of planted people who are able to come in to a wasted place as, as a result of this. It's like, there's so many sliding door moments within this story itself. And then that is one in and of itself as well. The condition that Ulster is left in and left without its chieftains who who up and sail away from Rathmullen with, with the intention, presumably, of encouraging the Spanish to come back, but but leaving the place without its leaders. Uh, famine, wasted, depopulated, just ripe to be changed and, and, and changed and changed it is. But I've jumped too far ahead there now. You mentioned about the Spanish and the, the Yamada and those interactions, but potentially as well for O'Neill. Again, I take it from your book that on instruction, he, he hanged the Spanish soldiers that he found, but but saved the officers. I mean, it's if that's the case, it's strange to think how that kind of went down well. Maybe it was understood by the Spanish that this was what they had to do, but, you know, that, li- that links were made even after the... Cause, yeah, I've heard other stories like that where the Spanish soldiers were were hunted down, those that that survived or swam in off the rocks or or whatever it is they did, the, the ships that limped into bays. And some obviously would have been protected and saved and the like. But um, but it might have given O'Neill also the sense of like, oh, hang on, because it's shortly after, isn't it? I mean, it's 1588. And you mentioned a couple of subsequent armadas as well. But it's, you know, and this is 1593. But as you as in the book, you talk about nine years, is it 10 years, is it 14 years, you know, and, and McMahon as an example of like, well, this is what could happen to my territory if I don't take proactive action. Maybe this is a way that I can kind of, so I, I make these links, I, I I use my power and prestige in in the, you know, because it's the general wider Ulster area. He is the, he's the top dog. I mean, what, why is it, by the way, that he's the top dog? Um, He's preeminent. One, because uh, military part, he, let, let's just face it, um, if you've got more troops, um, you're you're in charge, Turlock. And does he have more troops because he has more money and more land and more ability to generate the revenue to pay for that? He gets more money, he gets more land. He uh, increases the land's ability to produce. Um, he's also uh, quite the cuter, uh, to use a northern expression. 
because he gets uh, because he is seen as the crown's man, he gets English captains. This is the famous butter captains uh, to come in and train troops. Which he's meant to be allowed to keep six hundred troops. That's fine. What he does is he cycles those troops through. So that's he, right. That's right. I remember this. Yes. So he ends up with a massive. You're only allowed to train six hundred troops, but you didn't say they they had to be the same six hundred all exactly. the time. <laughs> and he actually has shooting competitions and things like that. No, like uh, prefers and things like that. He has like people where, where they come up and they shoot, and whoever shoots best wins. And the prize is actually uh, a caliber. It's like a light musket. Um, so he was encouraging very much this, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. There was no obligation either. Um, these people who were trained to become his bonnets, his paid troops, um, there was no compulsion. The, the people he did compel were lesser lords and erics, no people who had obligation under Irish law. But the people who made up the troops, the bulks, they were they were paid for. They were they were they, uh, and trained uh, by him. And so meanwhile, he's reaching out and encouraging conspiracy with others and saying, look, this is our chance to this is our chance to what? I mean, what might have his end goal have been? What did he think he could achieve? Or is that is that knowable? Ultimately, what he wanted was he. His final goal was suzerainty to be top dog in Ulster. That's what he wanted. He didn't want to be king. Some people would actually say, oh, he wanted to be king of Ireland. He didn't because he didn't actually see himself like he would have saw himself as an equal of way, say, the Earl of Ormond or something like that. Because so on a social level, they were they were seen as the same. He didn't see himself as king. He saw himself as uh, in basically the top dog, as you call it, the top dog in Ulster. But he could see the, the the encroachments happening on his land. So what he said is, well, if I'm ever going to be free of the English, we've all got to be free of the English. Mm. But he didn't see it as some sort of nationalist crusade, no, to, mm. to turn it into this great republic. Mm. What he wanted to do was swap sovereigns. So he'd said to um, uh, Philip II of Spain about, would you like to be king or would you like your brother uh, uh, to be king? Uh, and so the, the the option was to actually just change sovereigns to, to make the sovereign of Ireland a Spanish one, as opposed a Spanish Catholic one, as opposed to uh, an English Protestant one. Um, and people said, well, then you'd still be under Spanish control. I was like, I don't think Turin really minded that because, to be honest. Spain's a long way away mm. when you're in charge in Ulster and he's not going to have to worry about you know, new English Protestants coming in trying to chop up his land mm. um, because Spain would need the lords that are already there to run this mm. adjunct of the Spanish Empire. Mm. Um, but yeah, the fact is that he knew for that to happen, all of Ireland had to be free. Otherwise, there's always going to be the threat that the English will come back. So for him to get what he wanted, everyone had to... So he's training up significant troops. He's he's reaching out and 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 fomenting a conspiracy. When and how does that break out? I know it's not that clear um, because you know it, he flips from at one point doing the work of the crown, relatively speaking, to to not doing the work of the crown, relatively quickly. You know, was was there a change moment, or was there was there acuteness in the in the previous operations, knowing full well that at some point he was going to flex muscles in a different way. Well, you see it happening. Um, well, he says it even in his own writing, he calls it the 14 years war because as far as he's concerned, it starts with the Spanish Armada and he gets the... That's where he part. dates it to. He dates it to then because that's when he also gets um, the eight Spanish captains that end up in Dungannon, one of which, Pedro Blanco, stays with him. Um, and so, sorry, but did, did he um, hang the Spanish soldiers? 
they, there's confusion over that. He writes later the, to Inditor Connell saying about how this shouldn't have happened, but it was the Hovindans that did it, and the Hovindans were his uh, foster brothers. Yeah. And so it's easy to blame them. Yeah. Um. So yes, there was Spanish soldiers were hanged, but there's a lot we've been transported out through the yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. Okay. And, no, and it's not the key thing. It's just it's just interesting. Yeah. But they were they were killed. But he actually has Spanish officers in Dungannon. Okay. And one of which is Pedro, Pedro Blanco. Blanco. He actually stays with them all the way through, and mm. and it's actually with him in Rome when he dies in 1616. Mm. Um. And from that, you start to see how he builds his power base. He's got his political connections, but what he needs to do is establish predominance in Ulster. And I mean, everyone, because there's a huge amount of clan, Irish clan lords that are allied to the English, uh, clan de Boy O'Neill's, um, and he needs to get that crushed. The clan de Boy O'Neill's are, are the glens of Antrim side of things. Oh yeah, they're over around Belfast and over around um, North Down, things like that. Um, and so... What he needs to do is secure all that before he even thinks about anything about moving south. But he has to do that without getting an English response. Like, say if he's hitting the Clan de O'Neill's here, Clan de Bagnall, he can't do that with the threat of English troops coming up. Mm. So what he does is that he gets, he uses a, a, a Maguire, mm. Steve Maguire, who's his son-in-law and from Anna, to kick off the war there, mm. uh, and uses an excuse of a that there's some poor behaviour by an English captain uh, called Willis in Fermanagh, and this is sort of like the spark that sets off um, Hugh Maguire in Fermanagh, and he puts Willis out of Fermanagh and then raids into Northern Connacht, mm. and basically starts a shooting war in Fermanagh and in the west. And there's nothing the English like better than a good solid shooting war because nothing says progress like shooting people. And so that takes their eye way over there. Mm. So while their eyes over there at this shooting war, Tyrone is going for around all the different Irish clan lords and either going, <laughs> You've got a choice here. <laughs> now, lads, we're going to do this. Now you're with me. And then the ones that have their heads screwed on go, I no bother because. <laughs> and so then he bonnets troops on their land. He yes. sends troops to live with them. Yes. One, because he says, Look at me. Yes, I oh. can. I can support you, and look, these troops will be here to aid you. But they're his captains charging them. So yeah. while his men are there, what he says goes. Then there's some other people who say, you know, Hugh, it's a great offer, but it's got to be a no. And Hugh's like, all right, fair enough. And um, actually, it wasn't a, a choice. <laughs> actually, it wasn't a choice. When you see the English... When you see the English come up, like you're obviously referring to the Pale and Dublin. Uh, I mean, you know, where is the English influence? Is it dotted in places then? Like you mentioned Bagnall and Newry. Dundalk, I know, is the outpost of the of the Pale. Carlingford, I know, was a walled town, presumably a fortified English town. What other spots are there? You know, I mean, presumably Cork and Limerick and those sorts of places. But is, is that the case that the Pale is English power and then there's spots around... And and obviously clans that that have you know mm. offered their loyalty and stuff. But you've got but... you've got the Peel, and then you've got uh, all the big cities, or the well, big towns, you should say. But yeah, you have areas of influence. People you know, like in the Ulster borderlands, you've got people like Sir Henry Duke has lands in the around there, and you have Carnyford, and you got Carrick Fergus as well. Carrick Fergus, yeah. And so you have uh, English lords and English officers dotted around the place, so that whenever actually it comes to move against, uh, say. Uh, Maguire, Bagnall as Marshal of Ireland, 
he's like a marshal of the English army. He gets the lead. But uh, and then you have Bingham, who uh, Sir Richard Bingham, he's another character, one of the, in, the, in the pantheon of terrible people in uh, late sixteenth century Ireland. He's a he's stands right up there. His treatment of the Irish in comics really quite brutal. Um, and so he's president of uh, or sorry, chief commissioner of comics. Um, so there is the English influence and English forts all around the place. Uh, and so when they move, they gather troops from. Uh, either the, the garrison, you know, which is like about, only is about a thousand you know, uh, troops based in Ireland, um, and the rising out, which is like uh, it's like a militia of the old English and their adherents, uh, and that's where these troops are gathered from. So, whenever the shooting war starts in Fermanagh, uh, you have Bagnall and Bingham move with a rising out against them, uh, and sorry, the, the garrison troops as well. Uh, so there is military power there, but they can only concentrate in one place. Mm. And so they're forced to send it all after Maguire. Mm. At least all the adherents. See, see all the clan lords, the Irish the clan lords for the English and also they've got no support. There's letters coming out of uh, O'Neill at, at Clan the O'Neill's going, here, where's that support? He's, he's actually besieged in Cumber uh, in 1593, 1594. And there's letters going to Dublin going, ah, uh, a bit of support here would be great, thanks. It's not forthcoming because they're all over in the West. And he has no option but to uh, submit to, to Rome. Um, so causing distractions in the West, shoring up support in the East, or or enforcing support. Uh, and does he do that a couple of times before he, he does sort that of. Out. 1593, 1594. He in does that. ways in different places. It's all very soft. It's all very here, lads. It's always it's soft hand first. And, and it works because even. Um, uh, in Fermanagh, where the war kicks off, the there's other Maguires. There are no uh, again dynastic losers. No, they, they, they end up uh, subject to uh, Hugh Maguire. Uh, there's Cormac Maguire, who is totally pro English. He's whenever there's campaigns into Fermanagh in 1583 and 1584, he's totally on the English side. O'Neill secures his dominance. He has no choice, but he ends up has to submit to Tyrone mm. um, because it's basically Tyrone's way or the highway, and the highway is terminal mm. for most people if they mm. don't um, side with them. Um, but what what we see happening there when Tyrone's actually pretending to be loyal, mm. he also sees some glimpses into how he can be utterly callous and un, just un. One of the examples you have of it is um, whenever they finally gather an army to move against Maguire, it's uh, under Bagnall, and they march up along the iron. And Tyrone joins Bagnall. It's all because he's, he's told to, but he doesn't turn up with as many troops as he said he's going to turn up with. And there's all, he sort of stymies the Bagnall has this great plan for he meets Maguire at a ford just south of Enniskillen, but it's heavily fortified and Bagnall can't force it, it won't force it, uh, because uh, Maguire has these trenches all lined with shot, no uh, people armed with um, calibers, no guns, and he, he can't force it. And so he comes up with these mad plans about how he'd march around and uh, Tyrone would fix Maguire in place. Tyrone doesn't cooperate and says, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that, and forces, ultimately by not cooperating, forces um, Bagnall to march north. And then he meets an Irish force at Balik. 
Now, this force isn't the one that McGuire had. It's not armed with guns or, or pike. It's not the modernized force that uh, McGuire has. Which, by the way, the reason why McGuire has any strength is because these are Tyrone's troops that have been sent under his brother, Cormac McFarren. That's where all this, these are still Tyrone's troops. So literally Tyrone's seeing his own troops on the other side. But he forces Bagnall to march north and he meets uh, another section of Irish troops holding the ford at Bullock. Um, and these are all old style. These are Gallaglass and Kern and some shot, but mostly all Gallaglass under the McSweeney's actually. And to maintain this image of the loyal man, charges as Bagnall's infantry are crossing the ford. They're, they're taking some fire, but they're making their way across the ford. And the Irish start to decamp. No, they're, they're starting to march away. Tyrone charges these troops with his own cavalry and slaughters them. He kills over 300 McSweeney's just to maintain. Literally, his loyalty is shown in the bloody spills. And as far as they're concerned, job done. But they didn't touch Maguire's modern forces. The, the, the strength of Maguire is untouched, but Bagnall thinks he's done a great job. And Tyrone looks really, really loyal. And so I reportedly were 300 killed. Not a problem. That's And and the Galloglass are like um like Norse Scottish fighters brought in by the Irish over centuries. The 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 Galloglass, the the young foreign fighters, I think is mm-hmm. what it translates as the Kerns are the and they're quite heavily armored and they've big long axes, and the Kerns are usually Irish and they're lighter, they've lighter um uh, equipment and defensive and and, and mm-hmm. di- di- different technologies for fighting essentially is the is the way to define de- de- the difference between the two. But um, and you know the and McSweeney the name which continues to exist in Ireland and Terence McSweeney a famous one in Cork of course. Um, they are of the the Gallo. But are they Irish at this point, having been here for you know generations? Oh yes, I think they're 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 Irish now because they've been here for so long. Yeah, they're they're but still but still they're. They're there to be sort of um, used as an example. Um, oh yeah, they, uh, Galaglass have no place in Tyrone's new army. There are, when I say Galaglass, the technology, the system of Galaglass, and the heavy infantry with axe and mail, this has Tyrone has no use for them. They're a um, they're a, they're a past. They're a yeah, piece of the past that has no place in the any, future. That's actually one of the the the, the, the things that. Um, if people are looking for something more cerebral, know they're going, well, what does this tell us about our society? And one of the things big debates about our society at the time was, was it, could it change? Or was it moribund? Was it just decaying? And was it you know, some, something fixed in like the medieval past? And often this is used as an excuse for, well, this is the transformative effect of you know, the English colonization, is that they brought a dying society, this moribund society into the future, which is total nonsense. Because um, what you actually start to see is this transformation is a reflection of how adaptive the Irish are. Because if you look at other societies, um, one of the ones that I've compared it to would maybe be Russia or the Ottomans, is that the influx of new technology is resisted. No, this, this transformative effect is resisted by um, military elites. No, with they have a, a vested interest in. The current system so that's what they've always done and so that's mm-hmm. so you get resistance for people mm-hmm. who have an interest in the old system you don't see that there is no resistance or none that's recorded mm-hmm. 
you don't see people, there's no record of uh, Gallagher Glass family going, we're not doing that, we're not taking guns, this is the way I've always said. In a matter of 10 years, the old order, the old military system that you would have seen in the Desmond Rebellions, you know, the, the, mm. with the Karen and the Gallagher gone. You see the last ends of them, but just at the start of the war, you see, there's these Gallagher Glass, and then you see a few appear in maybe say 1594, 1595. Mm. By 96, nothing. If you look at the uh, records for people getting injured, that's 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 how you, one of the key wins. Ones, they never reported again, it's always shot mm. in the pike and swordsman, mm. as opposed to before you had the Gallagher Glass and the Karen. Mm. But also, you see the injuries inflicted on English soldiers when they reported, no English officers. Mm. Everyone's getting shot. Mm. No one's that. It. It's only at the start of the war we, we see people not getting hit with an axe. By mm. 1595, 1596, everyone's getting shot. Mm. Occasionally piped, but it's all shot. There's nothing with the old, the old mm. style. So you just described a scene where um, uh, O'Neill uh, uh, allows the suggestion of his loyalty to be maintained at a time when actually he's conspiring and scheming. And I know we're we're to get to Kinsale, which feels a long way off. So I wonder, like, but but you know, but I think we filled in a lot around it that it'll make the subsequent description easier to um, countenance. Um, but maybe we need to try to speed through a little bit of, or if not speed through, link through. I mean. Bagnell, when does Essex come in? Because ultimately then there's Mountjoy and Mountjoy changes the tactics and changes the whole nature of it. But you spoke earlier about how O'Neill has the succession of wins. Uh, I mean, you know, at at one point could have marched on Dublin and maybe should have marched on Dublin. Um, And and I know he is, he is, uh, you know, you know, an, a, a, a very effective uh, defence of the Moiry Pass, which again, interests me being from Dundalk, that gap of the North. I mean, what people might know, you know, is it geographically or geologically? But you know, Northern Ireland is 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 a place apart. There's really only two good good entry points into the north from the south of Ireland, and it's the the gap of the north, as it's called, the Moiry Pass, Slee Moiry, which I think is the way of the salmon or something. Is some of my exploration of what that name might mean. Um, and that's between Dundalk and Newry. Um, uh, and then it's it's uh, Ballyshannon and, and over in Donegal. They're, they're they're the two easiest ways in because of all of the like there was a, a glacier basically that that you know the drumlins of Monaghan, the lakes of Cavan. It's just not territory that's easy to get in and out of. And the two easiest passes are Ballyshannon and Dundalk, and why they're 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 fought over and why Dundalk is the 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 head of the pale. Um, and I know he wins a, a a battle in the Moira Pass, but he wins a series of battles, the Yellow Ford and the like, like. To try to get us to the point where, because because then the Spanish come to, I mean, I'm speeding through it, forgive me. Uh, okay. You know, this, this, the Spanish come to the wrong part of Ireland. You know, Aguila, there's three of them. There's Aguila and there's a few others. He seems to be slightly reluctant. He might have fallen foul of the King of Spain. And then this is him. He kind of got put into this role and he maybe didn't want to do it. And they come to the wrong part of Ireland. Why they come to the south or not the west or the north. Um, I, have, I have sped way through it there. Where does Bagnell... And where does Essex come in? Because Essex doesn't have success against O'Neill and, and ultimately ends up replaced and Mountjoy makes the difference. So what's that Bagnell-Essex-Mountjoy transition? Well, you have the, the, the huge amount of the flying through it. Actually, there's a huge section of the war, 1595. O'Neill finally jumps in with both feet. Started yes, yes. He, they just, he's they he's out. He I'm, 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 I'm in rebellion. Yeah. Don't even like the word rebellion. No, rebellion. don't you? Oh, so what, what what is the better word to describe it then? Revolt? It's hard. See, rebellion is a term we're sort of stuck with. Maybe they invent mm. a better word. 
because rebellion can be seen as a war against the proper authority. Uh, and, Whereas um, he's assert he's asserting that he is the proper authority. Yeah, he's he's asserting. Well, actually, the, the, the English don't have authority here, so yeah. it can't be a rebellion against something that doesn't gotcha. have validity. Um, and, and Elizabeth is the queen at this point. Elizabeth is yes, still very much the queen. Um, and she sends succession of. And she's uh, disgusted because he's a loyal subject. She won't even let the word war be used because war. Uh, is a term that is used, as she described it, their own officers, as it is a war is conflict between sovereigns, between equals. No, mm. even if one side's bigger than oh, the other. So this, there's a snobbery even in the use of the so word. She wouldn't even allow them to use the word war. It yeah. had to be rebellion. Okay. Um, and then she wouldn't even allow it to say, when someone mentioned about peace with O'Neill, she lost the battle again because peace is made between sovereigns. Submission is made by recalcitrant rebels. Uh, recalcitrant no subjects so there was only rebellion and submission you weren't to be talking about peace and war um but she sends a succession of uh people through 1596 and 97 o'neill expands this right into the south we're talking like 15 the start of war 1593 up to 95 uh you're talking about it's a war for ulster by after that it's a war for ireland so he pushes south uh and when you say pushing south, stop looking at the battles. Often people go, well, that's where the fighting is going to... Oh, no, but often the fighting is, where it's not where he's making political gains. And he's creating alliances. In the, in the same like, way we already explained. Exactly. He's they can be diversionary moves. tactics in order, because he's off doing business that's securing a whole wide area. Yeah, all of a sudden they're fighting in some valley in Armagh. And O'Neill's people are making alliances in Offaly and Kilkenny and... the. the all of a sudden, there's like fighting in Wexford, and like, what's going on there? So, so you can't, the, the, people have also been distracted by where the fighting is, but no, there's gains are all throughout uh, Ireland. This gets to the point where um, they send the largest force put together yet. That's under 4,000, 4,500, sent up north under Bagnall, the Tannery Blackwater Fort in Armagh. This all goes wrong for Bagnall, all goes right for Tyrone because he's prepared the ground and knows what he's doing. Hammers, the force that the, the, the Battle of the Yellow Ford, he kills upwards of half of them, uh, including Bagno. Yeah, and they must nothing. have been they must have been shocked. Oh and this is Bagno, this is Bagnell now, who's the older brother of of uh of Hugh's wife, but but she might be out of the picture at this she's point. Dead. She doesn't last long, she she's died by fifteen ninety-four. Wow. Um but he but Bagnell would have been gung ho to go in and, and, and make amends or to seek revenge and he ends up dead. But but it must have shocked the authorities that this largest force ever gathered in Ireland can be beaten so easily. And beaten easily. And they had everything. They had all their, their cavalry, they had their cannons, they had everything in the place that should have said they should have marched to the uh, Blackwater and Tyrone would have been swept aside, because that's what they expected. But uh, their um arrogance, there's a certain level of military arrogance that went with it that, that they paid the price for it. So let me ask you something, Jim, because this actually is also what interests me about this period, because, you know, when you learn of Irish history and you learn of what happened, you kind of wondered how was there never a coalescing together to resist? This is it. And arguably from 1168, there, there hadn't uh, had there been a greater coalescence of, of Irish forces to resist English incursion or, or, or this, this is it, really. I don't think there was. I think this that, that's again, people say that they don't even have a genius for um uh, military no uh, improvements no the revolution in the Irish military 
he creates a confederation unprecedented and for most a lot of actually up until my joy the english couldn't really get their head around the fact that he created this coalition and he created a coalition that again he could have things happen a level of uh, military sophistication that was across the island he could have things done in Connacht to influence the military situation in Armagh he could have things done in the Midlands that he was pulling strings course. he was like a puppet master he had coordination and mm. a level of uh, operational sophistication mm. that the English just couldn't get their head around until Mountjoy Mountjoy realised hold on a sec here this, you, had, you have small letters coming out from officers going this is nothing we've seen before and mm. but the upper echelons in England just it takes them to sixteen hundred to realize that they're up against. So the Essex comes in after Bagnell is 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 killed. Oh yeah! After that, the Queen decides, right, we're going to send my best guy. Well, he actually wasn't her best guy, but he he talked yeah. a good talk. Yeah. And we're going to raise the troop levels to unprecedented numbers. You know, eighteen thousand. Uh, he didn't come with an army of eighteen thousand. She sent reinforcements to make it about eighteen thousand. Unfortunately for Tyrone. Um, and unfortunately for the English, he is no match in any level for the um, for for uh, what uh, Tyrone is doing. He's a military dilettante. He, he talks a better talk and uh, organizes a better fight than actually fights. And he just gets the fritters away this massive amount of uh, money and troops. And he's like he he goes on this busy march around Munster and makes a great deal of taking care of castle. He goes, oh, I could do nothing until I take care of castle. And I was like, well. No one had even heard about Kerr Castle beforehand until he said he wanted to take it. And is Carew down there at that time as well? No, Carew doesn't come, come up till um, okay. 1600. Okay. Um, and then fritters away is uh, the forces he has and the money he has. Uh, blames everyone else. Says, oh, this didn't happen, that didn't happen. Oh, while he's busy uh, messing around in Munster, you have disasters happening. The English armies routed in the Curly Pass uh, under Sir Connors Clifford. They take a hammer in, and Clifford, who's the commissioner in Munster, he's killed. Um, you have Henry Harrington is overthrown in Wicklow. Their, their forces take an absolute hammer in. So it's not going well. And is he, he kind of avoiding the issue? Is it is it almost kind of like being able to send back, oh, it's all going so well, but actually he's nowhere near where he needs to be? Absolutely dropping the ball completely. He writes... But, but is it deliberate, do you think? Is it almost deliberate to avoid having to face up to it? I think I'm, I'm not very mm. kind to Essex in the book. Um, mm. uh, and I think he had this fear of failure. He certainly, he's, uh, when things didn't go his way in England, he sort of threw straps and clothes. It's just like running to your bedroom and not talking to anyone. Mm. And he does this in England after certain uh, mm. mishaps. And he does it here, mm. that he blames everyone is doing it wrong and the reason why it's a failure was everyone else's fault apart from his even though he's the one he's the mm. the, uh, the one in charge mm. um, and says troops are cowardly even though he sends them all in penny packets into loads of these tiny garrisons and totally uh, dilutes any sort of military strength and then he finally gets to the point where he's undermined his military strength so much that then he can say well look at this I can't do this now and literally, he's undermined his ability to do it, and then he creates an impossible task. And then he says, "Well, I can't do this impossible," so even though he's responsible in the first place. Then he meets with Tyrone and the northern borders, and he can't—he just doesn't have the numbers. He even comes off with a stupid idea of like this grandstanding 
let us meet one and one, you know, me and you, Tarun, and we'll settle this once and for all. Turns like, yeah, you're home. And uh, then he, he have this famous day, have this uh, meeting uh, in uh, by the river. Sorry, what ages are they, uh, Jim? Just to give me an idea of Essex. I can't remember what the well, age no, but because... even O'Neill, like what what ages, what period of his O'Neill life is O'Neill was born in fifteen fifty, I think. Um, Forty. He's in his late forties. Right, hitting the back end of his forties, and um, so Essex cuts a deal, another another um, uh, ceasefire. Which have always ceasefires. The thing is, he's playing straight into Tyrone's hands because uh, he's always used ceasefires to create breathing space. Uh, and no, the English, some officers go, "This always worked as his advantage." It allows him to reposition troops, resupply troops, and basically set everything up for recommencing hostilities. Essex falls for it because he wants to. He wants to get out, and then uh, in no time at all, he goes to England. And busy deserts his command uh, on the pretense that he's going over to say what happened to the Queen. She's not happy. He ends up arrested. And then ultimately, um, when he gets out, he starts this really sad twitch, for want of a better word. Uh, and he's arrested and executed the next year. It's a sorry end. Like, and so his this is all comes a cropper in Ireland. Finally. Do, do they campaign across winters or, or you know... Not normally. Yeah, that's where Mountjoy comes in, though. Yeah, Mountjoy. Um, so, so just just before Mountjoy, then is it the Yellow Ford where O'Neill could have marched on Dublin? Like, is is there a point where he maybe had a chess piece move to make that he didn't make that could have made all the difference, or was there an end game ever in sight for him, or or did he know what his end game was? Like, or was he just gonna hope that he could keep countering whatever came his way? Was was that it? He's waiting on the Spanish. I oh, think. I think oh, he's waiting because yeah. they've been promising and promising and promising. Yeah. And they said they were going to send the big armada, and they did in 1596. And then Philip changed his mind at the last minute and sent it to Spain or sent it to France. And that was 12,000 troops. Could you imagine what 12,000 Spanish troops would have done here? Um, it's like that's what I mean. Sliding doors. It's like the whole. Twice. We we could be we could be communicating in a different language right now. <laughs> it's uh, I know people always push me uh, when I'm chatting on Twitter. They're like, "Go on, what would have happened?" I was like, "No, I'm not playing that game." Well, hist- historians tend not to like to do that. They like to just deal with what happened as what opposed to what yeah. what could have happened. But uh, well, we could have been we could have been chatting in Gaelic and able to chat in Spanish as well and English. <laughs> we might have had a load of language. We sit and having tapas for Christmas. Um. Um. So oh, okay. But but Mountjoy then he, he Charles Blount, Charles Blount, um, more of a cerebral soldier, uh, definitely one. Which and is he is he by the way the Mountjoy Mountjoy Square and Mount Mountjoy? I don't know. Did yeah. the truth? I'm yeah. not sure. People yeah. always ask me that. I'm not sure. Mm. Like Mountjoy mm. Prison and all that could have been mm. end up there some later. I'm not sure. Um, but he is experienced. Like he has has campaigned in France, um, and the Queen. Actually, he tries to go to France again, and the Queen gives off to him and says, sends him back to Windsor Castle to, you know, to, for his studies. There's apparently a great library there, and he's meant to be studying all the, the works of military history and uh, Roman history and things like that. Um, and so finally, uh, Essex actually slags him off one time, basically saying he was just a book soldier. That's a bit cheap coming from him. Um, but no, Mountjoy finally gets sent, and... This is actually, he gets sent just, uh, probably the English are really at their low point. Like they say, 
Uh, it's easy to say, well, O'Neill could have marched on Dublin after the Yellow Ford. But the fact is, the whole reason he did the Yellow Ford was because he knew there was a 2000, a big landing force had been uh, put together to land in Derry, and he couldn't have that. So Tyrone never killed troops just for the sake of killing troops. He, did, he wasn't a body count sort of guy. What he wanted was to affect the overall you know, strategic situation. And he couldn't have 2,000 troops landing in Derry. So he slaughters the army because he knows that those are going to get sent to defend Dublin. And so he couldn't march in Dublin because he still had the threat of that land. He couldn't march with the possibility of 2,000 troops still landing in the rear. So after the Essex debacle, Tyrone marches to Cork, totally uncontested by February. And by January 1600, January 1600, Tyrone marks, is looking at Conceal. No one touched him. He marches from the north, straight through the Midlands, past Cork, stays for a while there, sees Cork, sees Conceal, possibly where the whole Conceal idea comes from, is when he, because so dominant he is. Then he, he finds out that Mountjoy has landed in as Lord Deputy in Dublin in February, I think it is. And then he marches back again. And actually sort of tips his hand a wee bit, I, I reckon, because Mountjoy sees that any threat on Ulster will force Tyrone March. And he marches actually really I think he does it in 10 days. It's just an amazing feat of marching that he marched from like Cork to Ulster in 10, less than two weeks. And I presume Mark. he's kind of asserting his strength and surveying positions and places. Oh, and... yeah. And, and there's nothing the Allies, you know, the people he's talked into join him all through the Midlands and all and into Munster um, as a, a big show of strength. And no English troops come near. No, there's no attempt to stop him. And th th there's nothing there to stop him. Um, there's no... And so this is probably the high point. Because also, what I didn't mention is that after uh, Yellow Ford, that's when Monster goes up in flames. The whole that whole plantation totally collapses. It turns into uh, Tyrone sends uh, a small force of maybe eight hundred, and and they are just across the border into Monster, and the whole place just falls apart. It's not, and there's, a, and there's a bit of viciousness there, isn't there? Like there, it's, it's like more, as if there's a lingering feeling from the Desmond Rebellion that was suppressed and. There's a like 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 civilians and there's a bit of there's a bit of the old, the old massacre and a bit of the old mm. ultraviolence that mm. you don't really see. In this, it, it, this that's part of that's the almost a little reflection of what occurs in 1641, which is another Absolutely, key yeah. point in Irish history. Uh, it just it's the kind of thing you don't didn't see in this war. It's you a see bit potentially the, sectarian, even. Oh yeah, very much so. I think, um, and I think even the. Irish lords and monster are surprised and they even write back saying we have to get a hold of this before you know, the mob is busy in charge here and mm -hmm. so they take over and they get a, get a handle on it um, so yeah when by the time uh, Tyrone is marching down there the English position is pretty much just the towns, some forts and bits of the Peel there's even people in the Peel and Tyrone black rent, tax He's taxing. So they've the never been at a weaker point in their entire yeah. time on the island of Ireland. There is nothing to stop them. Literally, he marches the length back all the way down to Cork and back up again without anyone firing a shot at him. Mm. And uh, they're, they're writing like he's doing this in broad daylight. There's, like, see all this guerrilla warfare sort of hit and run stance. 
and yet and yet 12 to 18 months later it's all um, different and that's so Mountjoy is the guy what what yeah. he's just got a different way about him. he's got different tactics it's almost like he sort of changes the rules does he he goes oh we never fight at night we'll fight at night we never fight in winter we'll fight in winter like all of the things that you're not supposed to do we'll do in order like he's just sort of ruthless is he what I would say is the first one that turns up that doesn't think of the Irish as he, he backwards. He's he got goes, it. He's these are the people that are putting England, Glory Islands, England have almost lost Ireland, and they've not done this by luck. He's the one that recognizes what Tyrone's at. He sees the strengths of the Irish and he sees the strengths of Tyrone. And so he decides to work to his strengths. One, he decides, well, the troops we're using aren't working for us. So contrary to what you might read in older books where they say about the Irish copying the English, he copies Tyrone's reforms. He gets rid of the heavier muskets, which are limited mobility. He limits the amount of pikes, which are limited mobility. He gets rid of the armor, which is limited mobility, and start to try and make his troops as mobility as key. And starts to make his troops look more like the Irish, not the other way around, and operate more like the Irish. And sorry, something I wanted to mention. The other fact of the matter is um, they are Irish troops. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, absolutely. The English troops, as we call them, a lot of the time are composed, uh, maybe not as much of Irish troops, but anyway, it's not as clear cut as anything is. Um, it's it's Irish against Irish in many occasions. Oh, yeah. Like the, 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 the rank and file troops, sometimes this contains 30, 40 percent. Sometimes whole companies are entirely made of Irish, even though they're counted as English troops. Mm. But the way they were fighting was by English methods. Yes, these dense formations, which just wasn't working. They, 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 mm -hmm. they were, their tactical and operational mobility was just ridiculous. The Irish so he studied his them. opponent and said, all right, yeah. I'm going to match him. Yeah, he says, I'm going to change that. He changes the way they're trained. He changes the way they're fed. And he, see, he institutes reforms that allows them to get a level of mobility, that allows them to move across the landscape with somebody else. To match the Irish. What he also does is he sees that Tyrone, his key concern is always Ulster. And so what he does is he institutes landings in Derry, a large force, 4,000 troops under Dockra. He lands in May and uh, on the foil because that limits how Tyrone can operate because all of a sudden he's got a massive force. In his rear area, his, his, yeah. behind him, yeah, he can't. So what he actually ends up doing is he has to, how he actually secured the loyalty of Southern Lords. We remember, saying about he sends troops, and so then they can say, well, these are my troops, and I'm military strong, militarily strong. But as long as they've got troops, but they're Tyrone's troops, they have to do what he said. He has to withdraw some of those troops, and pull them away from his allies. They has to leave them to stand their own two feet to secure the rear areas and to strengthen Ulster. And, that, and uh, as a term used, busy bridles his entire operations outside Ulster. That gives Mountjoy the opportunity to cut through the Irish Midlands. One, forcing Irish lords to submit. And two, it cuts off lines of supply. Because one of uh, Tyrone's mistakes is he actually concentrates logistical force in the north, all where the supplies of gunpowder and weapons are coming through him. So that's a, a direct, uh, and Mountjoy sees that. So when he cuts those lines through the Midlands, he takes those Irish lords out of the equation and cuts off the gunpowder supplies. 
to the south, you know, in Munster and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's where you start to see it all start to come apart outside Ulster, is because once they've transformed their troops, the Tyrone's, but Tyrone's troops are predicated on gun, no, shooting weapons. And when there's no gunpowder, they're stuck to using things like their pike, and they're forced to use their pike in ways that they weren't designed. Forced to use them uh, in attacks, which they weren't really, the Irish pike were more like a defensive unit. Against the cavalry charge. Yeah, to keep the cavalry at bay, and that's pretty much it. But then they're forced to act like they weren't trained, and then all of a sudden you start to see loss after loss after loss. And you also see how I actually discovered this is you start to look at the wounds being reported. Mm. Before that, when they, mm. when they have good supplies of gunpowder, all the English officers are getting shot. Mm. But after that, any report, any wounds that are being reported, they're all being piped or hit mm. with swords. So that, that once you take gunpowder out of the equation, it totally yeah. undermines the combat strength and you start to see loss after loss after loss. But in the midst of this, the Spanish finally come. <laughs> Finally, they took their time. At this point in this Cork History Matters podcast chat with author Jim O'Neill on the Nine Years' War, 1593 to 1603, let's take a little break and we'll recommence with part two, which will take us directly into the heart of the action at the Battle of Kinsale, 1601. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.